morning and happy new year. Hey, new year, new you, huh? Right, we'll see. You ready to study your Bibles this morning? <laughs> I can't say nothing. That's what it is. If I don't say nothing, you, I get a good response back. But if I say something, then all of a sudden you're like, yeah. You ready to study your Bibles this morning? All right. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm filling in for Pastor Steve, uh, who is with his family in West Virginia, as they have just laid to rest his beloved father, uh, who is now in his glorified body, singing the songs of his Savior forever and evermore. Steve and his family are now filled with a holy envy that their patriarch has seen his Savior's face and touched his hands and feet that has saved him. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's word, kids, you may be dismissed um, into your classrooms. Everyone else, would you turn with me to the letter of Jude? Jude, the letter of Jude. And as you get there, I would like to sort of frame up our Time This morning, we begin a short uh, two-week mini-series covering this very short letter to the church, but one of immense profundity. Uh, Jude is a letter with no specific address like we see in Paul's epistles, uh, but historians and scholars believe Jude wrote this letter as a warning and encouragement to everybody in the faith. This letter was passed around from church to church, Christian to Christian, family member to family member. And that's where we draw the title of this series from, Family Matters, with a little inspiration from the 90s sitcom as well. Because although this letter is not addressed to a specific church, it is addressed to a specific kind of person. This is not an open letter to the world. This is a letter to family about family business, matters pertaining to the family. And so I just want to say outright, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, your relationship with Jesus is maybe complex and unsure, then this letter is not for you. It's not. But don't check out just yet. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to eavesdrop. I want you to eavesdrop because though you may not be family today, it is a very real possibility that you could be by the end of this. I believe that to be true. God give you ears to hear this conversation that's got nothing to do with you. Could you in this moment be like a child who presses their ears against the wall while the adults are talking in the other room? That's what I want you to do. Speaking of family, therein lies maybe a potential problem with our time this morning. Some of you here have wonderful ideas about the concept of family. Some of you remember family dinners, family vacations, playing video games with your dad, times of joy and laughter. Your, your idea of family is a positive one. But for others, the concept of family is a negative one. Filled with abuse or loneliness or betrayal. It's a, it's a broken picture. It's a shattered glass on top of family photo. But however your memory on family, humanity reigns in this room. And whether your concept of family is a good one or a bad one, we can all agree that to some degree there is no perfect family. But it's to this point, to this idea that Jude speaks, or should I say writes. The church is not like a family. It is a family. I have to credit my friend Pastor Mello and his church, One Family Church in Apopka for that one. It is a family. 
And Jude highlights what it really means to be a part of the family of God. This letter is a vigorous and pointed letter, but it's also clear and full of imagery to help drive the point. I want us to look at the first seven verses of this letter as I call your attention to four points of family business for us to discuss. Four truths that Jude wants every member of God's family to know. And here they are. You belong. You are blessed. Beware and bow down. You belong, you are blessed, beware, and bow down. So I've tagged our time in this text this morning, your place in the family. As Jude gives us complete truthfulness into what it's like to be family with God. It's not a cell. It's the reality of our present state. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, and then would you pray for me as I pray for you as we hear together what thus saith the Lord. Jude, starting in chapter 1, and it reads, A servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once For all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, you have called all your children to this place to discuss some family business. To know who we are, what we are to do, what we are to be aware of, and to bow down in submission. Father, there are people here who you have brought into this conversation, whom you desire for them to be family with us. Lord, let your word do its work this morning. Would you bless me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought, and would you give the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My wife loves uh, the movie Tarzan. The, the Phil Collins joint, the Disney animated one. You know which one I'm talking about? No? Okay, cool. There's an animated movie that came out in 1999 called Tarzan. Disney made it. Phil Collins did the whole soundtrack. One of the songs on there is one of the greatest Disney songs ever made. That's all you need to know. But when I was watching this movie with my kids and my wife once upon a time, we, we go through this thing in my house where we watch one movie and then we watch it 87 times and then we watch another movie. Yeah, y'all with little kids know what I'm talking about. But, um... I don't know what, who's listening to my phone, but what came up on YouTube uh, when I went on YouTube once upon a time was Tarzan from like 1939, you know, like the black and white ones. Did you ever watch those when you were growing up? Uh, they're probably like on Boomerang or something. I don't know. But um, I, watching this, I ended up watching this like string of like 13 movies uh, called Tarzan Finds a Son. And uh, this movie, uh, Tarzan, if you don't know, is a man raised in the jungle by apes, uh, and he swings from vines and, you know, does monkey things, but just as a human. And uh, Tarzan, who has a wife named Jane, that's another story, but it's not relevant, they, they find, a, <laughs> they find a, a crashed plane, and the only survivor in this plane is an infant baby, and they raise 
this baby and they affectionately name him boy. And, um, and what happens is that throughout many times in this string of movies, Tarzan and his son go for swims in the rivers. Now, this is particularly agonizing for me because if you know me, I don't like outside water. I like the water that stays in my house, that comes from the faucet or the one I drink. That's the only water I play with. And they would go for these swims in these rivers. And what would happen is as they were playing, something would be creeping in the background. There would be something that, that, that makes its way ever so slowly, consistently in these rivers, uh, waiting to attack and devour this little infant boy, the, the one who Tarzan loves. And what would happen is, is these crocodiles, because that's what they were, these crocodiles would attack and Tarzan would wrestle them down and, and he would always outsmart them and always outmuscle them. And every attempt, Tarzan always won. I share this with you because Jude is a letter that faces us with the reality that among us, in these very waters we swim in, so to speak. We share it with ideas, frameworks, and even people who have come in stealthily into the waters. We, we live in a world that is not ours, uh, 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 an environment that, that is not native to us, that as much as we enjoy the fruit of its freedoms, the music, the movies, the culture, the language, it is not Ours. We, we are in the world, but not of it. And these thoughts, these ideas, these frameworks, and even these people have come to damage, destroy, devour, and deceive those whom God loves so dearly. It is to this danger. Jude writes this short but pointed letter to declare a truth and an encouraging word to every family member. It is a call to sit at the dinner table and hear from our father through the writings of our big brother to reorientate us, to center us, to remind us of our place in the family. That brings us to the first point in Jude's message. You belong to God. Look at verse one. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus. Jude, or Judas is the Greek, is the name of the author of this letter. And he identifies himself further as a servant of Jesus and brother of James. Look at that. He tells you his station and his family. But let's take this backwards. Why would he identify himself with these two markers? Well, firstly, in Matthew 13, we see Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude would be the English translation. So as best as we can know, the author of this letter is the kid brother of Jesus. But why not introduce yourself in that way, right? Why not in a culture that praises heredity, why not state I'm Jude, brother of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what I have to say. Instead, Jude opts to introduce himself after his next eldest brother, his oldest full-blooded brother, which is interesting, isn't it? Well, we could kind of make sense of this if we try, right? James was very popular in first century Christianity. He was James the Just. He wrote the book of James. A strong letter calling the church to live what they say they believe. He was the Tony Evans of the first century church. He was pastor of the, the church in Jerusalem. He had the biggest church in the biggest city in the known world at the time. But here's, but really, here, here's what I think. And this is me. Much like James, much like his other full-blooded siblings, Jude did not believe Jesus was the Christ until after the resurrection. Jude did not believe Jesus was the Christ until after. For all of Jesus' ministry, Jude thought he was mentally ill. He thought he was a madman. 
He and his brothers and sisters and cousins even showed up to wrestle Jesus down, tie him up, take him out of the place he was, and bring him home to talk some sense in him. We studied Mark not too long ago. We read where that happened. He did not believe. But I mean, how could he, right? Imagine living with the embodiment of perfection. Imagine sharing a room with, bathing with, playing with the person whose mind, body, and soul never knew sin. Could you imagine? Church, I love my brother. My brother's younger than me, and he is, I like to joke, the more perfect version of me. He's taller, he's more handsome, he's a basketball state champion, he's a United States airman, he's got a college degree. He's, by all accounts, a better son and a better brother. I love my brother, but let me tell you something. If he came to me talking about I'm God, I wouldn't hesitate to put the pause on him. (laughs) I would not blink twice. I would hem him up and talk some sense into him too. So I understand James and I understand Jude. But this fact makes the reality of this letter And then when you consider the contents of this letter, all the more beautiful. See, Jude wrote this letter to tell us something. I'm going to give you the ending now, so I'm sorry. He wrote this letter to tell us not to contend for the faith, which is what the the verse apologists like to come to, to, to sort of like get themselves ready for attacking people. That's not the point of the letter. And actually, when you consider that verse in the context of the letter, which we'll get at in a minute, I think you'll probably think it doesn't mean what you think it means. But he writes this letter to say, God is a keeper. God is a keeper. That those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord find themselves a member of God's family. And when you are a member of God's family, you will always be a member of God's family because he keeps you. Not excited. And so Jude begins with this introduction. This modeling of how he introduces himself is also true of us. He says, Jude, a servant of of Jesus. His relationship with Jesus is no longer brother to brother, but slave to master. Oh, the humility in this. Jude models for us here that we belong to God and God belongs to us because we've been purchased by him. Oh, see, you're always a slave. Always. There's nothing you can do about that. You are a slave. The whole of the Bible will preach to you that you are indeed a slave. There is nothing in your free will that could stop that. You are a slave. You want something tangible. Romans 1 tells you just how much of a slave you are. You are indeed this slave. But your first master, our first master is sin. And there is nothing we can do to fight this master. This master is so cruel that he didn't cut off your legs so you couldn't run. He didn't cut off your hands so you couldn't fight back. He didn't even take out your tongue so you could speak against him. No, what this cruel master did was steal your mind and your affections so that you would believe that you could run away, but you just run back to him. So that you could believe that you could fight against him but you just harm yourself and other people so that you would believe that you would speak against him, but really what you'll do is talk yourself back into his mastery. He is a cruel master. It is the most horrendous horror story and the most tragic of tragedies that ever existed. Shakespeare couldn't write something sadder and Stephen King couldn't write something scarier. Oh, but God. Before time was time and you were you, set you apart. And at just the right time, 
sent his son to free us from our bondage and carry us on his back into eternity. See, you had a price on your head. The bounty was far too high for any other idol to pay. You had a cost so high inflation would be embarrassed. And God saw that cost. And he didn't shudder to think, oh, well, that's too expensive. No, he said, I know just what I'll do. I'll send myself in my son to pay the price with his life. It is with his broken body. It is with his precious blood that we have been purchased. Oh, this blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Family, you belong to God because you have been purchased by his blood. And he's a different kind of master. Before I get there, I like what the New City Catechism for Kids says. Very first question, it says, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong mind, body, and soul to God. Oh, he's a different kind of master. He is a different kind of master. See, when you fail, you can always run back to him. When you fail, you can always give him an embrace. When you fail, you can confess your sin and receive his love so that the praises of his glory will always be on your lips. You have been purchased. I might have to talk the rest of this out. I'm too excited up here by myself. It's not, it's not just that we were purchased that lets us know that we belong to him. There's more. Jude now reminds us of our calling. He says, to those who have been called. This word is not what you think it means. It it doesn't mean invited. It does not mean to be called upon. No, this is a different kind of call. It's, it's, It's an effectual call. In scripture, there are two types of calling. There's a calling that's a proclamation given indiscriminately, okay? An example would be, I am calling all of y'all to come back next week for part two of this series. Indiscriminate call. I don't care who I'm talking to. I'm calling all y'all, right? It's a call to action. And then there's an effectual call. It is the inward spiritual call of God to the elect that is working together with, at the same time, the regeneration of your heart. Let me help you out. All of us, God has chosen in eternity. All of us who, sorry, God has chosen in eternity are called particularly by God. And this effectual call is effectual in its power and outcome. Through the call of God, a sinner's heart is regenerated and her will is liberated. All those who are, it, who are called in this way will be justified and ultimately Glorified, and all the glory goes to God who made this work happen by his calling. I need you to see that this is a gift. When you were unable to save yourself from the depths of sin's torment, God called you out and you listened. You understand? God called you out. And you listened. It's it's mysteriously wonderful how it works. There's supposed to be a little confusion involved because God reserves the right to all knowledge and only gives us a little bit. And I know it's not sexy or attractive to kind of hear that, but it's the truth. And Jude is saying you belong to this family because God called you out of death into life. And here you are. I don't know if you're able to see it yet. But being a part of God's family has some benefits attached. When God calls you like this, justice and glory come with it. When you are purchased like this, freedom and liberty come with it. Oh, our Father saves us 
into beauty. Our Father saves us into gladness and joy. Our God saves us into his love. That's the next one. How do you know you belong? Because you are loved. This too is a distinction between general and specific. But this one might be a little easier to understand. There's a reality that God loves everyone, right? This is true. You breathe his air. No, okay. You, you could stop holding your breath now, I promise. Everything's going to be okay. You breathe his air. You enjoy his gifts. Some of you with kids might get this quicker than others. See, at, at our house, we host a Bible study on Friday nights. There are children who come to this Bible study. I love every one of these children, okay? I try my best to talk to them, see how they're doing, right? God willing, I'll be there for the rest of their lives. I love each one of these children. I love my children differently. No? You don't pay bills at home? You didn't just spend? I don't even want to check your pockets, but how much did you spend on Christmas? I ain't getting now one of these kids a gift for Christmas. That's the daddy's job. You see, there's a different kind of love. Jude is saying, for those of you who are in Christ, you have a loving father whose love for you is perfect and permanent whose love is perfect and complete. It is not fleeting or whimsical or conditional. You can do nothing to make him love you more and nothing to make him love you less. First John is right. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son for our place. It's a specific kind of love. All y'all breathe his air, but not all y'all coming into the new city. All y'all eat his food for sustenance and satisfaction, but not all y'all are eternally satisfied in him because he gives you a different kind of bread. You understand? It's a different kind of love. And finally, Jude says, if you belong to God, you are kept by him. This, this is actually the premise of his entire letter, this point right here. It is fitting that it would be the end of all these identifiers of belonging. Because he's going to argue this all the way down. Kept is translated to be in the perfect sense. It means protected. Not to protect. That you are protected, have been protected, will be protected. It is to keep that you have been kept from harm. You have been preserved, will be preserved. It is, it is a perfect and complete word, the way it's translated. Jude wants you to know that God will keep your salvation protected. That your place among the family could never be replaced. That your chair, your spot, your belonging, your status of love, could never be stripped from you, forfeited or lost. That Christ will keep us from falling out of his grace so that we are totally and utterly without blemish, spot or wrinkle on the last day. Jude is saying to us that the work Christ did here on earth obtained our salvation and he is in heaven preserving, maintaining our salvation. He is preserving you and me and all his children for glory. That's what belonging means, that you are purchased, that you are effectually called, that you are loved beyond all measure, and that you are kept forevermore. No, I'm going to chill out. It's okay. Jude moves on from one point to the next. His first point discussed the matters of our belonging to God. But his next point detail three abundant blessings that flow into the life of everyone who belongs to him. He prays that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied or increased in our lives. What, what does this threefold blessing mean? Well, mercy is God's kindness and compassion toward his people. God being merciful means... That when we deserve punishment, he doesn't punish us. And in fact, blesses us instead. 
Mercy is withholding of a just condemnation. It is withholding a righteous but fatal act upon someone who has committed an offense worthy of such response. In other words, because of our sin, just one sin, we deserve the full wrath of God. The full wrath of the God who created the universe with a whisper. And we commit more than one sin a day. Some of y'all like me, we commit more than one sin an hour. And yet here we are. God fully demonstrates his mercy in Jesus by sending him to be the object of the wrath we deserve. And what Jude is saying here is that when you are family with God, mercy be multiplied on you. Spurgeon says, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water, deprive the sun of its light, or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. None of you here this morning, listening online, are too far out of bounds for God's great mercy. Then Jude says peace. Peace is a complicated one. Peace is the well-being. The well-being that results from a relationship with God. It is a twofold, maybe threefold word. Peace is something we have externally, which leads to something we become internally. It is to remind us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and that those in relationship with him, he gives wholeness and completeness to. And from that wholeness we experience in him, we now become the embodiment of peace on this earth. It is why Paul says in Romans 5.1, we have been declared righteous. We have peace with God through Jesus. That's, that's peace externally received. Then in Philippians 4.7 says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus. That's an internal peace working within us. And then Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God. That is peace embodied. God is a God of peace. Jesus, the mediator of peace. We, heirs of peace, now called to embody peace in all that we do. That's only for the family. And Jude says, peace be multiplied unto you. Finally, Jude wraps up this trio of blessing with love. You, you should know love by now from reading just these two verses. The love of God exudes from every letter, word, space, and punctuation. John did not lie. God is love and shows his love to us in sending his son to die on the cross. And it was Christ in Christ that love was born. The, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit loved you before you could love yourself. Before the first star was kindled. Before the first living creature began to sing its praises to its creator, God loved his church with an everlasting love. He watched you through the spyglass of predestination, pictured you by his divine foreknowledge and loved you with all his heart. It was love for you that made Christ leave his father in heaven and come down to be one with you in humanity. It was love for you that made him go to the cross to discharge your debts, to bear your sins on his own body on that tree. It was love for you that he slept in the tomb, a love for you that he rose again and went into the heavenlies waiting for the day he will come back to pick you up. You who made yourself ready for that day by his grace, never for a moment, family, whether as God overall, blessed forever, or as God and man in one divine person, or as God dead and buried, or risen or ascended, uh, never for a moment has he changed in his love that he bears for you. He has loved you for all eternities past. And his love is kept for you for eternity to come. And Jude says, love in all its depth and mystery, that love be multiplied to you. 
That's what it means to be in the family church, that you belong, that you are blessed. Then Jude shifts tone. From verse three on into the rest of the letter, he, he changes tone. In all this goodness and all this glory, we have enemies still. People, ideas, thoughts, worldviews, and frameworks from the secular lens have crept their way into the church. Let me be clear, because I've talked with some of y'all in the faith, and y'all act like, not y'all, but like y'all, big C church. You see what I'm saying? Y'all act like some, sometimes this generation is somehow unique to church history. That somehow this decade is different. This century is crazier. This millennia more messy. Look at the text. Everything that's been going on in our world today has been going on with the same severity, with the same purpose since year one. Family, please, 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 please do not believe the lie that somehow there was a golden age of faith. That somehow when you were younger, there were less apostates than they are today. That in the 1800s or the 1600s, the severity of sin was less than it is now. This is simply, in the most simple way I can put it, untrue. Untrue. The first century Christians to whom Jude is writing to were experiencing much of the same apostasy we see today. And Jude tells us to beware. And he tells us how by telling us what to do. He says, contend for the faith. Defend it. All that is good and true that we just unpacked and uncovered, defend that. Jude says, I wanted to write a different letter to you one about unity, but necessity has determined that I write this one. Don't miss that, church. Guarding yourselves against apostasy is not just some aspect of being a family member of God. It's not just some part of being the Christian, protecting the family, contending for what makes us family, guarding against any philosophy, idea, framework, worldview, or persons that seek to deconstruct that fundamental reality that God loves us and the implications of that love is of importance. God does not play with his glory. Now let me remind you of the peace that we have in Christ in light of this. Jude's letter is not a call to arms. It is not a decree of offensive tactics and maneuverability against the world. It is not a call for a war council meeting to be on the offensive. No. This is defensive. This is in the spirit of peacemaking. We, we like to look at the word contend here as a call to get in the spiritual octagon, so to speak, and strike down, take down, and submit every opponent that sits across from us. That is not peacemaking. There is a reason why Jude says, peace be multiplied onto us before he gets into this. But let me just say this. I can understand the offensive position. I can understand it. The word contend in the Greek is apagonazomai. It's how we get our word agonize. The word appears in both military and athletic contexts. It means to fight or struggle with intense effort. So I can see the confusion. But in both athletic and militaristic contexts, offense isn't the only approach we take. Jude calls on us to strive after, fight for the faith. And this word and his words suggest that he knows it will not be an easy battle. It will be agonizing. So the point here is to communicate the nature of the contending. The manner in which we are contending, I am arguing, 
is prescribed by the context of this letter. Peaceably, we contend for the faith. Our faith, our salvation is noble and honorable and worthy of every bit of our agonizing efforts to defend it. Jude then gives three people for us to be aware of. First, those who deceive the church. Jude tells us these people come in by stealth, sliding through a side door, sneaking over a fence, worming their way through the crowd. They are among us at every place in every community we are in. They look like friends and act like friends, but Revelation says they look like sheep but speak like dragons. They deceive the concept of the church. They belittle the church by refusing its gathering, by tearing its people down. That's the first person. Then, those who distort God's grace. These are false teachers destined for destruction. They are the wolves in sheep's clothing. They're teaching a false doctrine. Their character is described as ungodly and their conduct deserves condemnation. They turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. They use the faith, salvation, mercy, and love as tools for taking pleasure in the sins of the flesh, sexual misconduct, drunkenness, and gluttony. Then lastly, those who deny our Lord. Now, Jude is not saying that these people deny Jesus' deity. He's not saying that they deny his personhood or even his work. What they deny is his lordship in and over their lives. They are their own law, their own moral compass, accountable to no one but themselves and their yes-men. Do you know who these people are, church? Have you considered who they might be? Consider what these three apostates have in common. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here scrolling through the Rolodex of your memory, asking yourself who you might know that fits in each of these categories. I know one of them is in this room right now, at least one. Look in the mirror. Each one of us, every time we fall into the depths of our sin, operate as each of these. We deceive the church. We distort God's grace. We deny his lordship each and every time we fall into the darkness of sin. And Jude says, beware not so much of them, but beware of you. Your own flesh, your own sin. Contend for yourself the faith. Defend the faith against yourself. When you find yourself in momentary unbelief, when you find yourself, or you find your thoughts captive by rebellion, when you find yourself operating in immorality, continue to run to and cling to the mercy of God available to you by the grace of Christ Jesus. Y'all ain't like that too much, I'm sorry. Y'all really wanted it to be somebody else. I did too. Finally, Jude ends this portion of the letter with more warning, but not only that, he gives us instructions on submission. Now that we know we belong, now that we know we are blessed, now that we know we are to beware of ourselves, he calls us to bow down by remembering the past because our sin today is not new ground for grace to cover. I'll say it again. Our sin today is exactly as the sins of the past. And Jude tells us that we could find ourselves more humbly subjected to Jesus as Lord when we look back to how God dealt with Israel. Specifically, Jude wants us to be mindful of our propensity to not believe God. Some of y'all must have never sinned before. Jude tells us 
by pointing us to Israel that the heart of all our sin lies the enemy of unbelief. In moments of weakness, we doubt God's word. In moments of darkness, we cast uncertainty on God's consistency to love. In moments of rebellion, we turn away from the one who is trustworthy. Far too many times in the family of God, we believe in our hearts that God has saved us in the past and that someday in the future, he'll take us to heaven. But today, I'm unsure. Your eyes focused on your declining health or your family squabbles or your finances, or your ministry, believe that God is silent. Jude reminds us to look to the past. He said, God took the Hebrew people out of Egypt and then crushed them for their unbelief. Remember that the danger of today is the same as yesterday. Unbelief. Bow down and surrender to the Lord. Jude further proves his point by reminding us of the fallen angels. They, they wanted something more. A different position of prominence. A better place of activity than what God had carved out for them. That right there sounds like a lot of us already, doesn't it? Through self-deception, these angels rationalized their lust of position power, prestige, and possession. With inflated self-importance, they did not trust the plan of God and to their fall, look what they gained instead. They gave up heaven for hell. They gave up being a servant of God to become slaves of the devil. They gave up light for darkness, freedom for change, joy for condemnation, privilege for punishment, honor for disgrace. These angels made decisions no different than we do in our sin. And quickly they found out that standing up to God meant being crushed when bowing down gave them love. Family contend, fight, Oppose your flesh by bowing down in surrender to the God who loves you. Jude continues to drive the point by closing the section with two final points in verse 7. The first one is this. Do not underestimate the power of sexual perversion. Most of us look to this verse right here. And think of the sexual revolution of today and homosexuality and all of that. But that's only half of what Jude means here. There is also heterosexual misconduct that is equally sin and equally punishable. Sex before marriage and sex outside of marriage. Please, church, please do not highlight one kind of sin over the other. Do not weaponize your view on homosexual sin over your view on heterosexual sin. Do not beat slaves of either kind of sexual sin with your arrogance, your disgust, your preferences, or your politics. That is not the way of the gospel. We contend for the faith with grace, mercy, and kindness because that is what we received in Christ. Sexual sin is not even the worst kind of sin. That's blasphemy. Some of y'all looked up at me like I was about to say some heresy. But the Bible, the Bible is clear. That widespread sexual sin, I'm going to give you some, context, some contextualization for us today. The Bible is clear. That widespread sexual sin is the clearest evidence of a society that has rejected God and has been given over to judgment. We agree with that, right? If you don't, it's right there. But in America, rampant sexual sin has been our society's embrace since day one. That is the world we live, that is the waters we've been swimming in since 1776. And that leads to Jude's final word. Eternal fire awaits. Hell is real. 
And verse 6 told us that it was prepared for Satan and his angels. But they won't be the only ones there. This place of suffering, sadness, and separation is a terrible reality for God's creation. A place formed in the heartbreak of God. And Jude is clear. The unbelieving, the rebellious, the immoral, they will find their destinies there. But I want to wrap this up. These seven verses in Jude are a vicious circle of truth. Yes, God will condemn unbelievers, rebels, and the immoral. But he's also sent his son for them. You're not listening to me. God will condemn them, but he has also sent his son to die for them. You might have found yourself described in these verses. You might have found yourself in the second half of this exposition, but come back to the top with me for just one second. Beware of your sin. Bow down to the king and fall on your face at the foot of the cross, and there you will find yourself belonging to him, purchased by his blood, called out of the darkness into the light, loved and protected for all of eternity, able to enjoy the abundance of mercy, able to enjoy the abundance of peace, able to enjoy the abundance of love. And now that you're here, you can contend for the faith, contend for the faith against your own heart, contend against you who are tempted to deceive the church, you who are tempted to distort God's grace, you who are tempted to deny his lordship and if you find yourself slipping and falling and can't get up good you are that much closer to the cross because the foot of the cross is not suspended in air for only the strong and mighty who can reach it with the touch of their hand but it sits at the floor for the broken the needy the weak and the trampled on that is where the cross is so when you bow down you find your face there and you find you must think I sound like a broken record. You find that you belong. And you find that you're blessed. And you find that you can fight. And you find that you can bow down. I can say this because I can testify within my own self. I can testify to you that when my sin brought me low, I found that my face touched the foot of the cross. And it was there that I found that I belong to God. It was there that I found that I am blessed. It is there that I found that I can contend and there that I found that I can surrender. And when I bowed down, I remembered again that I belong. I remembered again that I am blessed. I remembered again that I can beware and I remembered again that I can bow. Stand with me and worship. 